Thanks for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. Stay tuned until the end of our next episode titled Time to Care About Medicare to receive a code for SHRM credit. Now, enjoy the episode. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Benefits Breakdown. I'm Vanessa Longnecker here with... Hey, everybody. Jerbo Kutz with you again. Hi, everyone. Adam Compton. We just are excited, elated, jumping out of our shoes with the with the uh, opportunity to connect with Dr. Louise Short, Brown & Brown's national clinical leader. And we're going to take a deep dive into a really important topic, uh, cancer. And that's going to be something that we all have impact on. We know people. We might be going through that ourselves. So we're going to step back, understand the industry, talk about some of the employer opportunities to help support employees and their families. But before we get into all the details, Dr. Short, welcome and love to have you intro a little bit about who you are with inside the brown and brown world. And then if we dare step outside the box, maybe even something personal to show that it's not just all business or some fun and games outside of that. So welcome to the show. We'd love to learn more about you. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me here today. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about cancer. And um, my name is Louise Short. I run the population health practice. and I'm very involved in our innovation hub. Um, I've been at Brown & Brown for almost five years now. And my background is internal medicine, occupational medicine, and preventive medicine. And I've been in the population public health space for uh, over 25 years. So I work with a lot of our clients on developing strategies to improve health outcomes, address cost drivers. We use data to identify what those clinical cost drivers are and figure out how we can help their uh, employees and their families. Um, as well, we want to control costs and keep things affordable, make sure that people are engaged and productive. So um, that's what we do. And we try to measure everything that we do and the impact that it has. And we try to bring innovation and new solutions to our clients. Excellent. We're very blessed to have you on the team and certainly excited about what you have to share with all of us today. Maybe we can tip start the conversation just talking a little bit about how much of an issue is cancer in the general population? What's the prevalence? Most common cancers in the U.S. in 2022? A little bit around screenings. Great. So prevalence, about 40% of uh, men and women in the U.S. will be diagnosed with some form of cancer in their lifetime. The overall rate of new cancer diagnoses has stayed pretty steady. And what we're seeing post-pandemic is it kind of looks like there's a spike up because people have missed a lot of their screenings. A third of people have missed uh, recommended screenings during the pandemic. But actually, the overall rate of new cancers has stayed steady. Just as a, some perspective, almost 2 million new cancers are expected to be diagnosed in 2022 in the U.S., and 80% of cancers are diagnosed in people 55% or older. So the good news is uh, that uh, five-year relative survival rates for all cancers combined, this varies by cancer, but has increased substantially since the 1960s. So um, that's from around 30% in the 60s uh, to about 65% now. And that's, that's a big improvement. And yeah. it's, it's really amazing, actually. And it speaks to innovation and development of new treatments and therapies and decreases in modifiable risk factors, which we'll talk more about before, um, particularly smoking. 
Um, so what this means is, you know, if the, if the rates of diagnosis are steady and survival rates are improving, that there's a higher prevalence of cancer in the population. So people are living, more people are living with cancer. And uh, right now, that number is expected to increase to about 22.2 million people living with cancer or cancer survivors in the next 10 years. Wow. So big issue for employers because cancer isn't just something that happens and then people come back. They're living with it. They're being treated with it. They're in the workplace. They're living as survivors. So that sort of lifetime of cancer is something that employers have to deal with. Dr. Short, you mentioned a couple of stats there that really jumped out at me that I think employers need and why it's such an important thing for employers to focus on, talk about, and, and have a game plan around. 40% of the population at some point will be diagnosed with cancer. That's a huge stat. That's I, I'd heard different numbers, but hearing that specific number is, is very staggering. And it, hopefully our audience is, is listening to that and realizing just how important a game plan around cancer is. And then one of the other stats that our audience needs to be aware of and really focus on is a third of people miss their preventive screenings due to COVID. And, and that's something that employers need to help their people focus on to get back, get back to their doctor, get those screenings done and focus on that. As, you, as you're game planning with clients, have you talked about or discussed ways that they can help make that more of a focus to get those screenings emphasized or some things that, that your team is doing to help them do that? Yeah, absolutely. Every employer is really interested in promoting screenings. And so what I would say few things. One is talk with your carrier about what they have. Uh, some carriers actually have analytics where they can target, for example, those people that haven't had mammograms or other recommended screenings and send targeted mailings. But in addition, um, general communications campaigns are really important. And then plan design, making sure that you're covering these screenings at no cost is really important. And then removing barriers, um, helping people figure out where they can go to get screenings. Um, one health plan I worked at, we actually, this was in the old days, but we, we published um, something that would be on the internet, really showing what were the screening facilities near specific groups of members and what their hours were. So that's really important. Um, Making appointments, if you have a navigation service in place or even a health plan, is there an opportunity to make appointments? And then workplace screening. So is there an opportunity to do, for example, mobile mammography or people forget about skin cancer, which is very prevalent. Um, you know, is there an opportunity to do skin screenings at home? Uh, and then making screenings convenient by doing some home screenings. So, for example, for colon cancer, doing fit testing or Cologuard. And again, these may not be applicable for everyone. It's more average risk, but for those that's applicable for trying to promote these types of screenings. The other important piece in screenings is cultural sensitivity and awareness. And, you know, different groups have different sort of health beliefs about screenings. I'll give you one example. I was working as a health plan medical director several years ago. Uh, we had a large African-American population. We were trying to promote mammography during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which is October. And um, there's a different sense of uh, mammograms and what they represent to that community. And so we leveraged actually black churches 
um, and the clergy there to promote screenings in those zip codes in which we had a high African-American population for the plan. And that worked really well. Um, we, we really bumped screening rates. So, um, you know, making sure whatever communications and um, partnerships you're leveraging, uh, another partnership that's important is the American Cancer Society. Often they will partner with health plans and help to promote screenings, either sending out mailers or providing other kinds of screenings or decreasing barriers. And they have a lot of um, good strategies too. So those are kinds of things that, that can be leveraged by employers as well, kind of partnering with these types of organizations. Well, it seems like you identify the first challenge. Maybe I, I, I've learned about it. I think we were talking about the opportunity for even second opinion services inside of that world, because Jared, what's your, what's your, uh, comparison about your auto mechanic? Do you always trust your auto mechanic? Therefore, should you always trust your doctor? Is that paraphrasing somewhat correctly or am I? No, am for I, sure. And I'm not trying to cause doubt in the mind of, of people with their physicians because physicians are fantastic. But I think I think sometimes as Americans, we have programs that doctors are so much smarter than us, which normally they are, and we shouldn't question them. But it, there's no harm in just having a second look. And, and I think what we're Jumping ahead, obviously, prevention and early detection is huge. And from there, how do we manage it once someone is diagnosed with cancer, right? And that, that is such an important part of the, the process is how are we managing the treatment plans and are, are people getting the best treatment plans? And that second opinion, you're exactly right, Adam. Do we always trust our auto mechanic? I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't. Maybe I need a shop for a new auto mechanic. Maybe that's a personal problem. But. <laughs> but I think it raises a good question of what are the two tactical things that we can do with the employer? What should the employer be looking at? And, and you talked about building off existing resources. If they don't have, it seems like Dr. Short Explore second opinion services. Maybe we could talk about that. Plus also, hey, as the employee, what do I do if I now have that? What's What does that journey typically look like with the second opinion service? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think cancer in particular is one area where second opinion services can really be of huge value. And I'll just kind of give the spectrum of second opinion services for employers uh, and members. So first of all, any member could call up their health plan if they've been diagnosed with a cancer and say, hey, I want to have a second opinion, refer me to another practitioner in the network. So that's just a basic level, whether or not they have access to a second opinion service as a benefit. But employers, you know, can put in second opinion services like, a, you know, Included Health Now, Teladoc, uh, they're all changing names, but there are a number out in, in uh, you know, the marketplace. And really the value here is that, especially in oncology, many times the diagnosis is changed or the treatment is changed. And I think people are kind of reluctant or even the treatment and diagnosis are confirmed, which gives you more confidence going forward, right? And I think people are reluctant sometimes, even if they have this second opinion benefit to access it, because they feel like, oh, their doctor is going to get mad at them, or they're scared about their diagnosis, or they just you know, don't want to take the time and they feel like it's going to be a huge effort. A lot of these second opinion services are wonderful because they collect all the records and they really facilitate getting that second opinion. So um, it can be a really vital part of um, that experience. And then sort of the third level, which employers are, are looking at and implementing, are these um, sort of direct to, I'll call them facility contracts. So for example, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, Access Hope in California all have 
second opinion services, plus many other services that have to do with genomic testing and um, and advising uh, treating providers in the member's home location about how to handle particular types of uh, tumors. So um, it really can be a huge benefit and um, improve potentially outcomes and the member experience as well. And the other thing I should say is that um, it's a little bit of a plug. We do have an expert medical opinion collective for our middle market clients with some preferred pricing. So um, for anyone who's interested in that, please contact your local Brown and Brown office and we can help you with that. Love it. Always good. You know, I always say back to the auto mechanic, right? We take our car in for their standard maintenance. Are we doing the same for ourselves? We are well-oiled machines. Whether it's a second opinion or you're trying to navigate care for the first time, it can be a very complex and or overwhelming experience for the average teammate. And so I think it's so important that we understand not only what concerns or what potential predictive indicators exist within a population, but that we're always educating, right? Both around proactive preventative screenings at all times. So it's it's not something that sits the bench, right? I would argue when we're consulting with clients and certainly data can drive a lot of this, right? Conversation alike, what type of ROI would we potentially see in a third party navigacy, right? Type platform as we coined it, uh, Dr. Short. So that's navigation and or advocacy really um, are both really important opportunities for employers today. Exactly. I would also, yeah. And data obviously also tells us, right, how many are within those defined preventative care guidelines that are not seeking proper care? And what type of issue or non-issue do we have in a given population? So you know that you're focusing your energy where you have the best potential for results, right? So again, don't overlook the data. Um, marketplace trends obviously can be very swooning, but where are your biggest needs are really important to be constantly mining as an employer. Yeah, and to that point, the guidelines are changing. They're very dynamic on screening. So for example, the US Preventative Services Task Force, last year changed the screening guidelines for colon cancer because we're seeing more people die, uh, who have it younger, diagnosed younger. So change the guidelines from 50 to 45. Breast cancer guidelines have also changed. Um, you know, they've lowered the threshold to 40. And then um, there's some new guidelines on lung cancer screening too. There's always been sort of some controversy about whether lung cancer screening is useful for um, in terms of uh, low dose CT, and so um, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, again recently uh, put a recommendation in place that those people 50 to 80 who've had a 20 pack year history of smoking and currently smoke, um, or have who have uh, quit in less than 15 years ago, should be screened by CT. So. Um, that's something that's pretty new and the evidence keeps coming and that's sort of the body that reviews it, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So important to keep up on that. It's important for employers to be aware of these guidelines and make sure that their health plans are keeping up on that too in terms of paying for these services. I love that and I'm glad we're revisiting the screen thing because we talked about it for a few minutes and I actually feel like we all could do a better job in this whole industry of messaging about the importance of the screenings. Dr. Short, one thing you mentioned of helping to communicate to employees, members, teammates, where they can get these screenings and, and helping them eliminate those barriers. Because there's always barriers to care, right? 
And if we can help eliminate, as employers, eliminate those barriers to care, cost is one of them you talk about making them free, helping them to know where to get these screenings. That's huge for employers. We focus on communicating all these benefits. Let's help make our people healthier and let's reduce costs because the statistics are so alarming when these things are caught early enough about how much more manageable it is today. You talked about the the rates of people surviving cancer and the survival rates and how much more it's improved. And they're even escalated when it's caught early enough. So I think that's some sound advice that our, our listeners can take. Let's help eliminate barriers to care and let's help our people find where they can get that care. And that's such a huge component to caring for your people and, and showing that you care for your people because you're meeting them where they are and making their life a little bit easier and better. So thank you for pointing those things out. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And one of the points you just made is so important, which is that the earlier someone's diagnosed, the better the prognosis is going to be. And that's really, really critical. And that's why all of the preventive care is so important here. Um, it really makes a difference in the outcome. Well, then kind of looping that back into the employers, it's going to be, it's, I don't mean to sound businessy, but interest because they're looking at this from a cost perspective. It, it's, we see countless drug reports of these new drugs that are going to impact a pharmacy spend or general care. If I'm surviving, I'm taking care and it's going to cost me more. And so that's going to be a huge expense to watch out. And I don't mean, I think that's something where we have to be realistic that we're going to look at as an investment to hopefully protect people in the long term. And it seems like data is becoming more prevalent. And we've talked a bit about genomic or genetic testing. And maybe we unpack that a bit because that data point or those data points allow us to grab things early and hopefully help protect individuals. So maybe we could maybe just start with the difference between those two and maybe some ideas that could help employers around genomic and genetic testing. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think there's a lot of confusion in this area. So genomic testing, really genomic is kind of like the plural of genetic. So it looks more widely at like genes as a group and sort of the full set of genetic code, right? And it looks for mutations. And it, it tells us what diseases were at increased risk for. Um, and, it, and it can also help determine what treatments might work better or worse for a particular person. So that's called pharmacogenomics, if you will. So, you know, 23andMe is an example of genomic testing, looking at your whole genome. Genetic testing is more related to one gene or one mutation. And so pharmacogenetics is related to um, a particular tumor type and which, which um, treatments, uh, pharmacological interventions would best target that particular tumor. So just as an example, we use breast cancer. Um, and about 12% of women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime, which is wow. really high. And there are obviously there are certain groups that are higher risk, um, you know, people who have a genetic predisposition, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, Ashkenazi Jews, et cetera. But anyway, um, the women who have genetic mutations that put them at a higher lifetime risk of disease, you may have heard of the BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, which a lot of people now sort of common speak in, in the population. but 55 to 65% of women with BRCA1 will develop breast cancer before age 70, and 45% with BRCA2 will develop breast cancer by age 70. So, you know, just how does this sort of relate to treatment? Um, 
and we talked about you know pharmacogenomics. So for about 20% of breast cancers, the cancers have this extra copy of this gene that makes a protein called HER2. And HER2 positive breast cancers tend to be more aggressive than other types of breast cancers. And there's specific treatments, pharmacological treatments um, that are um, can help to target the HER2 receptors and uh, make for a better prognosis. So on average, and this is very, you know, survival for those in later stages is better for HER2 than for HER2 positive and HER2 negative, but it depends on a number of other things, including hormonal markers, stage of diagnosis, et cetera. And that's really more for the late stage uh, cases. For the earlier stage cases, HER2 negative may be a better prognosis, depending again on the receptors, hormonal receptors. But the point is that, um, you know, in terms of genetics, um, there are specific pharmacologic agents that, that target that particular type of cancer. And so that's how specific treatment has gotten. And it's very complex. And this, again, why these second opinion services can be really helpful, um, particularly ones that are associated with some of these um, well-renowned cancer centers, because they're very, very up on the uh, genomics, the pharmacogenomics, and they can really help a lot of times the local cancer specialists in terms of some of these testing and performing the testing and interpreting the testing and the treatments. I'm glad you're on our team because you're super smart and <laughs> I'm very thankful for that. And I think you're outlining how complex it is and the drive to where people can get care is so important. And I think we're seeing technologies and more vendors and partners in that space. So, um, wow. <laughs> you have to forgive me for this because my teammates on this know that I do this quite oh, often. So I'm a mid-market employer <laughs> and I just got hired as their new CHRO. Good to meet you, Dr. Short. And Good to meet you. I'm working for Vanessa. She's our boss. Adam and I are on the HR team. You're meeting with us. Um, you've, you've got some basic data on this. Would you share with us just a couple of key things that you think an employer of about, let's say, 500 to 1,000 employees could do um, or should be doing? We've talked about some of them, but maybe just let's bullet it out. I, I always like to leave our audience with some nice takeaways that they can do and take back and, and make themselves better at what they do. So what would be some of the first steps that you would recommend we do and then maybe next steps from there? Yeah, so the first thing would be what you just said you did, which was analyze your data. That's really important. Know, you know, what cancers are prevalent in your population, what the costs are associated with those cancers, how they're being treated, where they're being treated. Um, but in terms of sort of the general approach that an employer that size would take to oncology and cancers, um, I think what's really important is figuring out what's available through your health plan, right? Because a lot of the management is going to be through the health plan. And so what uh, is the health plan doing? Do they have a specific oncology program? Do they have a certified oncology nurse as part of the multidisciplinary team? Is there a behavioral health resource? We really haven't talked about this, but you know, a holistic approach to cancer involves behavioral health. It involves um, coordination and sometimes with the primary care physician as well. Um, and it can involve, you know, DME or the appropriate things being covered, for example, wigs, if someone's hair falls out. So there's coverage issues and questions. And then, you know, what guidelines uh, is the health plan uh, using in terms of approving drugs and looking at drugs? Are they using NCCN guidelines? 
Um, and then in terms of care coordination, are they using the appropriate guidelines from the National Cancer Institute? Um, and then, you know, evaluating their preventive approach as well. And then the, the last piece that we really haven't talked that much about, but um, is palliative care. So what's happening with end of life? And this really shouldn't be just for cancer cases, to be honest. I mean, any one that engages with care management in a health plan, they should really be, uh, care management should really be asking, you know, first of all, who's your healthcare proxy? Um, you know, do you have la- uh, sort of life wishes? They, they call it the five wishes is one of the end of life programs. There are others, but, um, you know, and do you have other um, kinds of arrangements in place for choices if, when it comes to end of life? But of course, in cancer, it's definitely important to have all of this support. And then the other thing is just what, what's the support for the family? Do they have anything for the caregivers? Um, and do they have support with the EAP for caregivers or anything else? So, you know, that whole holistic approach is really critical in terms of cancer. It's not just the treatments and the drugs. It's, it's everything um, that's really, really critical. That was fantastic. I think you're going to keep... Adam and I employed. Hopefully, Vanessa, our boss, is happy with the game plan. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the other thing is disability. That's the other important connection here, too. Do they know what their disability benefits are? Should they need to go out? Um, do they understand that? And, you know, managing intermittent leaves or whatever it is, like helping to coordinate that is really, really critical. So, um, again, it's that holistic approach of you know, is there some type of navigation in place? Vanessa, you talked about the navigacy and um, are, are patients with cancer, as well as other patients, getting the benefit of that? At the end of the day, there's, there's certainly a lot of opportunities, right? And start with the data and decipher what is most meaningful for your culture and what drives the best results. Because again, at the end of the day, if our people are not at their best selves, they're not bringing their best selves to work every day. So thank you, Dr. Short. We really value your time today and appreciate all you do each and every day for our clients in the field and our teammates alike. So loved having you here with all of us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Benefits Breakdown. We hope to have Dr. Short with us at some point again in the future. And thank you to all for listening in today. Take care and be well.